We're glad that you're here to worship with us um, as we celebrate the Lord's Day every Sunday, um, honoring the God of our salvation. And uh, even through our prayers and through our singing, may we be reminded again that there is uh, only one King that is enthroned above all kings. He is one Lord who is Lord above all lords. And so um, we are glad that you are here. And uh, we want to just take a brief moment and if you wouldn't mind, just look around you. And if there's a, a face that you don't recognize, maybe introduce yourself and welcome them. Otherwise, if you recognize everyone around you, then at least wish your brother or sister in Christ a, a blessed Lord's Day. Let's uh, bring ourselves back together. I know you love that time to at least uh, um, greet someone, have a, have a moment to connect with people, and, and we encourage you to continue to do that right after service. Uh, we have a period of time that is uh, designated for you to have some fellowship, strike up, or continue those conversations, and encourage one another in the things of Christ. And then, uh, of course, we have our second hour. We have a couple of equip classes as well as uh, the children's Sunday school classes, and so we encourage you to stay and participate and enjoy um, the blessing of God's people gathered. And so, was there something? We, we <laughs> I don't know if there's something else we have to do, but we are thankful that you are here. And uh, um, as we look to uh, the scriptures this morning, we're continuing our study of the book of Romans, Romans chapter 13. And we get to this particular portion of Romans, verses 8 through 10, that speak of our gospel obligation to love. Now, the reason why we formulate it that way is because as, as if you have been following along in our study in the book of Romans, right, we pivoted from the theology that explained how it is that any sinner like you or I could possibly become God's child. And the Romans made it very clear from chapter 1 that we, as human beings and as sinners, we suppress God's truth and unrighteousness. That's, that's our cause. That's our purpose. That's, that's how we deal with our own guilt and sin. We pretend that we're not guilty. We suppress God's truth. And we look to ourselves as being the, 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 the means of, of establishing any kind of argument for righteousness. We are self-righteous beings looking to satisfy, right, um, the, our every moral obligation in ourselves. Well, the problem then is in how can such a sinner be saved? And the solution through chapters 1 through 11 has been that we must place our faith in Christ. That God's Son, Jesus Christ, is the only means by which any sinner can come to faith and come to salvation and forgiveness of sins. Why? Because he died perfect, living a perfectly righteous life. He died a sacrificial, substitutionary death that those that would trust in him might have their sins cast upon him on the cross so that their debts might be paid in full, that the wrath of the Father might have come upon every sin that I have committed, every sin that you have committed, every sin that we will commit, and he has paid for them in full. So that if we would place our faith in him, that we might, we might live a new and transformed life. So that's chapters 1 through 11. Then chapter 12, we began to pivot and make application of the gospel to every different area of life. Well, we looked at it most recently in terms, about, um, in terms of us uh, uh, living in submission to our governing authorities. And today... We continue in that process and talk about how does the gospel apply um, to love in particular. The gospel does obligate us 
to love. Not, not obligation in the sense that it forces us, but obligation in the sense that love obligates something. That God's grace and transformation obligates something. There is a debt of love that we desire to pay. Not that we, are, we, we must pay, not that we're forced to pay, but that we desire to pay. And it is the fulfillment of God's law for us. Now, one of the things that we're going to intersect here is the idea of love and the law. And according to um, scholars, there are about 613 commandments in the Old Testament law. 613. I imagine you, you have memorized them all, keeping track of them carefully, making sure that you're not breaking God's law. Right? You probably haven't, right? There are 613, and some argue that there are more. And some of them are obvious, right? And we'll talk about some of those. And some of them are less obvious. Some of them are very significant for an orderly society, and some of them are plain kind of odd. Our society, meaning today, not just in biblical times, but our society has a number of odd laws. Uh, Let me share with you a few. In California, it is still true, it's on the books, that women are still forbidden from wearing their house coat while operating a motor vehicle. You know what a house coat is? Neither did I. I had to look it up, right? Because I thought, is that just a regular? No, it, this is like your night robe. This is the robe you put on if someone comes to the door, etc. Women, if you are driving with your night robe, you be careful, man. I hope you don't get arrested, you know? Stand for Christ, right? Um, in Glendale, California, right, it is, it is against the law to jump out of a motor vehicle that is traveling at a speed of 65 miles per hour. <laughs> Sensible, Right? Because everybody knows, you know, after 64 miles per hour, it, it's, it's unsafe. That's, that's nuts, right? What, what an odd kind of law. In, in Eureka, California, it's still illegal for men with mustaches to kiss a woman. I'm looking right now. I'm trying to see if any of you guys, have, right? Odd. Arcadia, California, peacocks, peacocks, always have the right of way on any street, intersection, or driveway. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm not, it's like, uh, wait, what? Like, okay, all right. I, I'm pretty sure I could do that, right? There's, I've never seen a peacock in that. Oh, actually, oh, maybe because it's the Arboretum's over there, the L.A. Arboretum, and there are peacocks right there. Dude, that's the reason why. For this, like, one-mile square area. Okay, well, we'll leave that aside. And let me give you one more, right? Um, in California... It is illegal to hunt game of any kind from a moving mortar vehicle, except whales. <laughs> that, that's, that's the letter of law, right? So I'm not sure why you, maybe, is a boat a motor vehicle? I don't know. But maybe you could hunt whales, but not anything else from a moving vehicle, a motor vehicle. But in any case, 1971, uh, there's another law that was passed that says that whaling itself is illegal in California, so you don't have to worry about the exception of hunting whales from your car. All of that to suggest that there are so many laws that are around us, whether in our society or even in the scriptures. Now, we would struggle to memorize or to, to, to be able to properly process 600 plus commandments that are given to us in the Old Testament law. I think most of us would struggle to memorize even the, the Ten Commandments that are given to us in Exodus 20. Right? But what if I told you that all these commandments had a singular theme or pattern? In fact, what if all the commandments of Scripture could be condensed into a single phrase or word? That would be extremely helpful. Then you wouldn't have to worry about memorizing 613 commandments or even 10, right? You don't have to worry about whether or not you're breaking all of these negative commandments of things that you're not supposed to do, all these prohibitions. You just have to live out that one. And that one has been given to us already clearly. And the word that we might encapsulate all of the obedience of God's law, that the word that, that would fulfill all of it is simply the word love. That's our word. Do you remember in Matthew 22, one of the lawyers comes up to Jesus and asks him a question trying to trick him, right? Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? 
An obvious ruse, right? They're trying to draw him out so that they can enter into this, this dialogue and suggest that Jesus doesn't really know what he's talking about. Which is he going to choose? Which commandment? There are 613 to choose from. Like, whatever he chooses, there's an argument to be made that you have, you have neglected these other things in the law, etc. But Jesus is far too wise to fall into that trap. And Jesus answers them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. There's a gospel redeemed obligation to love. Every Christian who is caught upon the name of Jesus Christ has experienced the love of God through Christ for us. And as a result, there is then a natural obligation to live out a life that isn't about the pursuit of all of these 613 commandments, but is about the pursuit of love, the kind of love that God has shown us in Christ. And that's what we mean by a gospel obligation to love. Let me read for us this passage. We'll pray and then we'll jump right in. Romans 13, starting in verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, even as we have... um, rightly prayed for those that uh, that may even be in mortal danger in the world around us. We also lift up the nation of Haiti um, who suffered just so much difficulty already. The assassination of a president, um, earthquake, and now tropical storm. Lord, we pray particularly for our brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world whose circumstances are much more difficult than ours. We lift them up in love because we recognize even today, Lord, that love is really the application of your righteousness. That righteousness doesn't look merely like avoiding sin, but it looks like actively engaging with whoever you have placed in our proximity in a way that directs them to the goodness of our God and that loves them for the purpose of, of extending Christ's love love for us. So Lord, Lord, even as we look at the concept of love and its obligation on us, let us not hear from this message or from this passage some new rule that we have to adapt to our lives, something heavy-handed or burdensome, but let it be the freedom, the desire, the transformed heart that enjoys the love of God for us in Christ. And that is more than glad to stand up and do something because of the love of God in Christ for us. So we ask for your blessing upon this time, the preaching of your word, the singing of your praise, the prayers of of the saints for the saints and for this dying world. And we we thank you that we could celebrate this Lord's Day um, in peace because you are our God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, there's a gospel obligation to love. Is this working? <laughs> this has become a weekly thing, right? We, I'll, I'll make like an exaggerated motion and you guys can change it. There you go. Love is the obligation of Christians. That's going to be verse 8. Love is a summary of the commandments. That's verse 9. And love is the fulfillment of God's law in verse 10. That's kind of what we're going to look at. So love is the obligation of Christians. This is verse 8, right? Take a look at verse 8 with me. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So owe nothing but love. That's the first part of that opening phrase. And it is, in fact, the commandment, the singular commandment. Everything else will kind of fill in the details, but here is the clear command of Scripture. This is Paul speaking to Christians, so now this is a a gospel-related application to our lives. And he's saying as part of our growth in Christ, this is something we need to recognize. 
we need to owe no one anything except to love. The word owe is an interesting phrase. It's it's in the same word group as the word that was used earlier in verse 7. Remember in verse 7, pay to all what is owed to them. Right? Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, etc. So, so he is rifting on that same word, but he's saying that there is an obligation. The obligations that you pay to governing authorities, taxes, etc., pay those. Here, though, he is saying, but have no standing obligation, have no standing debt except to love each other. How are we supposed to take this phrase? There are some, I think, mistakenly that would take verse 8, the first part, and say Christians aren't supposed to go into any kind of debt ever. I I think that's a mistake in terms of understanding what this passage is saying. Um, Not only here in this context, right, because in this context, it's been talking about owing people stuff already. So you naturally have some debt to your authority, to your government, etc. You pay back whether it's in respect or honor those individuals that are around you. So that's already, there's already a sense that Christians naturally owe. There's a natural debt upon them, socially, politically, and even as far as love. But not only that obligation, but in Scripture, in the Old Testament, there was plenty of regulations for the idea of lending. Exodus 22, 25, Leviticus 25, 36. You guys can look at those on your own. But there is, there is certain guidelines for who you lend to and what you are allowed to charge by way of interest. If they're the poor, right, the nation of Israel is not to exact any interest on the poor. In other words, you're not to take advantage of their poverty. But if you rent, lend to somebody else, you could, you could lend at some interest, a reasonable one, one that is not you just trying to profiteer off your brother and sister. So, so Scripture seems to have guidelines for financial obligation. Here, it's not so much financial obligation because that's not the context of verse 8. This is talking about the obligation, generally speaking, of love. So I think we should take it this way, all right? Don't stay in debt to anything. If anything, if, if it applies to finances, it probably means that we are to time, in a timely fashion, we are to pay things back. If you are not paying back your debt, that's sin. That's sin in the Old Testament scriptures. That's sin here. But I think the, that this is setting the stage to say you should pay back obligations, but there is an obligation that never fails or that never diminishes. There is one debt that you'll never fully pay down. And that is the debt to love each other. Oh, no one anything except to love each other. There is a long-term debt that we have inherited as Christians to love. It's our New Testament term that we're very used to, right? Agapao for, from agape uh, for love. And it's a love of sacrifice and it's a love of grace. It's the kind of love that loves without demand or expectation. It's the kind of love that is not dependent on the loveliness or the, depend, or, or the deserving of the object of that love. It's the exact kind of love that God has shown for us in Christ. Undeserved, not conditioned, sacrificial, and freely given. This is the kind of debt that we have for each other. It's a Christian love to be unselfish, self-sacrificing, and, and merely for the fact that we cherish a human being because they are human beings. There's a distinctly Christian kind of love. It's a distinct, distinctly God-created, re, you know, redeemed kind of love. How do we know that? Well, in Galatians 5.22, it says that this fruit of the Spirit, the first thing it mentions, and I think the, the overarching theme of the fruit of the Spirit it says the fruit of the Spirit is love, Galatians 5.22. That's where it begins. So the question that we might ask is, can the unredeemed heart love like this? Well, I think the answer is not really. Right? You think about Paul's argument in Romans chapter 5, um, one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God chose his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The idea is this, right? 
Paul would say, if someone was religiously righteous, a Pharisee, right, would somebody die for them? Say, well, scarcely. I mean, maybe one in a billion? Well, yeah, I don't want to die for that dude. That guy's always judging me. That's, it's hard for me to die for that guy, right? Well, how about if someone is a good person? In other words, there's something virtuous about that person, someone that you care about. Would you die for them? Yeah, perhaps. Perhaps I could die for them. But agape love, the kind of love that God shows for us, is that God loves us in such a way that while we were still sinning, while we were still sinners, while we were still like registered as rebels and haters of God and Christ, that's when Christ died for us. So this kind of love is distinctly Christian and given to us by way of obligation. We are to owe nothing but love. Take a look at 1 John 4. Can you guys even read that? I apologize if that's too small, but you can look it up yourself later. 1 John 4, 9 through 13. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Now listen to verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought. You hear that obligation in that? We also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. So what is clear there in 1 John as well as here in Paul is that love demands something of the Christian. Not the demands of a heavy-handed requirement. If you don't do this, you're out. But the natural result of the redeemed heart who has experienced the love of God is that they would discharge that same love upon others. I like what, uh, um, what one commentator says. We may pay our taxes and be quit. He's talking about verse 7, right? We may give respect and honor where they are due and have no further obligation, but we can never say, I have done all the loving I need to do. Love is a permanent obligation, a debt impossible to discharge. And it's a debt that's given to us because we have been loved by God in Christ. Owe nothing but love, right? And then um, B, love each other, right? This is the second part of, uh, of verse 8. Oh, oh, nothing to, owe oh, no one anything except to love each other. And I want you to underline that phrase in your mind, uh, to accept to love each other. Love each other. Now, each other, the term can be translated depending on its context, one another. It can also be translated each other. And if we mean it one another, it probably, like the other one another commands in the New Testament, probably refers to how we are to interact with other Christians. One to another. All right? we, we are to care for each other. So if that would be the case, then it would be that you have to discharge this responsibility of loving others, particularly Christians, in the way that Christ has loved you. That's possible. But the more likely scenario here is the each other. And by each other, we mean that this is broader. It's not just to fellow Christians here. This is to anybody and everyone that enters into the, the, the proximity of our lives. Here, the application of Scripture seems to be broad enough, right? In the context earlier, we saw that we were talking about governing rulers and authorities that aren't Christian, right? We saw that we are to pay to our government and authorities what we are owed them in verse, verse 7, right? And verse 8. And so when we get to here, oh, no one anything, I think the no one still in that context is much broader. In fact, the next part, we're going to run into the phrase for the one who loves another, and that's heteron, that's, that's another of a different kind. So again, I think the context would dictate to us that this is not just you are to love one another. There are other passages in the New Testament that encourage Christians to love and care for one another. And I think there is a moral proximity there. We are to take care of one another, especially of the household of faith. But here, it's saying the discharge of our obligation to love is not just constantly on us, but it's for every individual that we run across. It's for each other. It's for each another. 
And that's why I put it kind of in that weird phrasing. Because it's like saying that it's the others that are like us, maybe our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's the others that are different from us, people that are not Christians, right? People that are like us, meaning that, that I get along with them and we get along pretty well. People that are not like us, they're difficult to love and they're difficult persons. And I don't know why God put them in my life. All the above. It's the other person in the sense of any other person that God has sovereignly placed into our lives. When Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Remember that was from Luke 10, right? The teacher of the law, trying to justify himself, answers back. He says, well, okay, but, but, but who's my neighbor? Right? That's, the, that's the classic question we get back. Um, and so Jesus tells a parable, right? Apologize, that's so small. But in Luke chapter 10, Jesus says that there was a Samaritan, and as he journeyed, he came to where he was, and, um, oh, I'm sorry, there, there was, there was um, a man traveling on the road to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, and others robbers robbed him, left him for dead, and then a priest was coming by, and then went to the other side of the road and passed by on the other side. Then the Levite was walking that same road, and then when he saw him, went to the other side and passed by. And we can make arguments for why that was acceptable. The priest might be going to do service, and if it's a dead body, he's not supposed to come in contact with that, or he would be unclean, and it would take days for him to go through the purification process, and then this would backlog the service of the temple. The Levite, similarly, might have service in the temple, things that he needs to lay out. He's like the helper to the priest, and so maybe he has his justification for why he doesn't help this, this Jewish man that is left for dead. But it's a Samaritan, according to Luke 10.33, as he journeyed, came to where this man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he sent him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Jesus says, Which of these... These three, do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And that lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. It's it's about loving each other. And who is our neighbor? Who is the other? It's whoever is the another that God has placed into our circumstance. Guys, you don't get to pick and choose who God has placed into your life. And I know for a fact, I've talked to some of you guys, but I know from every human experience, every Christian's experience, you have some people in your lives that are difficult, that are not so lovely. And you have people in your lives that are demanding or that are draining or that are hard. I get that. That, That's part of our human experience dealing with other sinners. Whether it's your boss, whether it's your sibling, whether it's your friend group. Whether it's your classmates, maybe it's, it's even your own spouse. But in acknowledgement of all of that, we still have an obligation as Christians to love and to love that another, that individual that God has placed in the sphere of our influence. And here's the last part. Thus fulfill the, God's law. Thus fulfill um, God's law. For the one who loves is the end of this uh, this, uh, the second half of verse 8. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. I want to point out a couple of things in this last phrase. One is that Paul shifts from plurals to singular, back and forth. And I think there's a reason why. Let, let, me, let me emphasize the singular and the plural this way. He says, Oh, no one anything. These are singulars, right? Meaning in any in- instance, right? Oh, no individual or, or in any circumstance, any instance, right? Oh, nothing, except to love each other. To love each other there is, is plural. It seems to be a general principle, right? In any instance, don't owe anybody, except you will owe, generally speaking, love to all. And here's the second part. For the one who loves, singular, this particular instance, the one who loves, who loves another, singular, this particular instance, 
He, it's singular, or she has fulfilled the law. That last part is all singular to suggest to us that Paul is dealing again with particular circumstantial instances. The one who at that moment, who loves another, that particular person, that that moment, that person, you have fulfilled the law. Singular. Why is that important? Because this idea of fulfilling the law, Paul is going to repeat as a principle in verse 10 at the end of our passage that we're looking at this morning. Here, though, I think he's emphasizing the particular application of one person to one another person for the sake of loving people. Loving other people is not the ground of our justification. Let, let me make sure that we understand that, right? Because we can often look at the idea of love and think to ourselves, okay, so if we are to love people, if we love people well enough, if we read First John, it sounds like, you know, that if you love people, then God's love is in you. Can you love someone well enough that God will save you just because you love people? Answer is no, because you don't love people perfectly. Now, you need to put this on the back end. Right? It's not a means of our justification. You can't love anyone enough that you could be saved apart from faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the point here is that whenever a Christian, you individually or me individually, loves another person in a Christian way, in that particular and individual circumstance, that one individual has fulfilled God's intention and desire that is expressed in his law. That's what he means by has fulfilled the law. By particularizing the phrase, by making it specific to each instance and each believer, I I, I think he's trying to keep this from becoming abstract and general. Right? The command is to love every person that God places in our lives because each instance we do, we are fulfilling the aim of God's law. We are exercising a goodness that is beyond our sinful human rationale or ability. We are exemplifying the love of God that has been displayed already in his love for us. We thus fulfill God's law. We'll say more about that later, but I think simply speaking, the idea of fulfilling God's law here is not that you fill up God's law, not that you make God's law you know, complete, you make it actual. The, the idea is that God's law, every law, every commandment has a purpose, an intention, has an aim. And that aim is that we walk in love as God has loved us. And in, in finding that circumstance to love someone more like Christ, you fulfill the aim, the, the intention that God has given to us um, in his law in all of the laws. And we'll see more about that in point number two. So love is the obligation of Christians, right? Love is also the summary of his commandments. So that's verse nine, right? So take a look at verse nine. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's an interesting statement, right? We begin with the intention of the law. Now, many had erred, right, when it comes to the idea of the application of the Old Testament law. Even in the New Testament, when we read through Galatians, we recognize that there are some, we call them Judaizers, who are demanding that the Gentile converts, that they obey the Old Testament law and the tradition of, the, of, of Judaism in order that they might be genuine Christians, good Jews first, then converted to Christianity. They needed to be circumcised. They needed to keep the dietary restrictions. All of those things that made us Jewish first, as a first step before they could come to Christ. And Paul writes Galatians, right, to debunk that. And he says in Galatians 2.21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So he's saying the keeping of the law could never save anyone. And on that basis, right, We need to be careful that when we think about God's law, we don't err on that side of pure legalism and we say that you have to keep this law or you can't can't be saved by Christ. The opposite error, though, is also possible. Some have mistakenly thought that since we have no obligation to Old Testament law, we don't have obligation to any law at all. We saw that argument early in Romans, right? 
um, when, uh, when uh, in Romans 6, when it's like, well, if, if, I, uh, if I sin and grace abounds, then if I sin more, then more grace abounds. So it sounds like I have like, you know, infinite health, right, in this game of spiritual life. And I could just do whatever I want and just keep on going because I'm indestructible, right? I keep on sinning. And that is the opposite error, to think that God's laws don't matter at all. See, the, the point is that God has given us his law with an intention, right, to provide for us a moral compass. There, there, is, there is morality that the law presents for us. Right? God's moral law still matters and applies. So that the Ten Commandments, they still matter. Not as a means of salvation. No, that would be the first error, right? Not to be tossed aside as, as something old and unnecessary for us. That would be the second error. But as a revelation of God's will, His intention, His desire, as the pattern for what it means to live a holy and God-honoring life. Look, the reason why God gave us His moral law is because it expresses what God wants from us. What he demands from every Christian. So to clarify, for the Christian, the law is fully satisfied in Christ. There is no law-keeping. Period. Exclamation point. Underline, right? There is no law-keeping. We saw that in Romans 8. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. This is Romans 8, 4 now. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Romans three twenty eight says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Amen and amen. But so what about God's law? Well, see, God's moral law has an intention to reveal what is good and excellent and how God desires us to live. And so the moral purpose of the law still remains. All human life, redeemed or not, will be measured against the law of God concerning how they relate to God and how they relate to others. This is really what the Ten Commandments is all about, right? If you guys are familiar with the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue in Exodus 20, um, they're given to us in two tables. I think of them as two tablets, right? Because you remember Moses in, uh, um, in the Ten Commandments, great Cecil B. DeMille film. You guys are too young, you don't remember. Your parents used to love that movie, right? But he comes out and he has two tablets. And so if there's Ten Commandments, how would you divide up the commandments? You do five and five, right? That's what we all do. No, it would be four and six. Why? Because the first four, that, that you shall have no other gods before him, you will make no graven images of him, you will not take his name in vain, and you will keep his Sabbath. Those all relate to us horizontally, how we obey God, how we relate to God, what his desire for our relationship to him should be like. Then the next six is how we relate to one another. So you have the the. Did I say horizontal before? The vertical tablet, us and God. And then you have the horizontal tablet, the next six. Honor father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. And you shall not covet. Here, in Romans 13, 9, Paul says, for the commandments, so he's talking about the commandments now. He's talking about the Ten Commandments in particular, and he names a few. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. So we're clear he gives us four of those six, but he gives them in this mixed order. Number commandment seven, commandment six, commandment eight, then commandment ten. Four out of the six, all mixed up order. Paul must have a bad memory, right? Is that what's going on? That's not what's going on. In fact, similarly, Jesus, when he talks to the rich young ruler in Mark 10 and Matthew 19, he doesn't name all six of those commandments that deal with our relationship to one another. Jesus he goes through five, number six, number seven, number eight, number nine, <clears throat> and then comes back to number five, honor your father and mother. Which may mean that maybe Jesus is trying to put an emphasis on that one, but for some reason leaves out coveting. 
Well, when you put all that together, the way that Paul handles some of the Ten Commandments, not all of them, the way that Jesus handles some of the commandments, not all of them, I think the implication is that both of them are summarizing the law generally and not every commandment individually. In other words, Jesus and Paul seem to be emphasizing that God has an expressed will in the application of his law. His will, his desire is for righteousness, for holy living, and for conducting ourselves in such a way that would honor him. So after throwing out a number, four in particular, of the six um, laws that come from the second table of the Ten Commandments, Paul adds this phrase. Look, look at verse 9 again. You should not commit adultery, you should not murder, you should not steal, you should not covet. And any other commandment, and any other commandment, so that he can capture the entirety of God's moral requirements. Not just these particular commandments, but any other one that you could think of. So this is not law-keeping for the sake of attaining any kind of righteousness. This is law-keeping because God desires it, because this is what is loving. This is what loving individuals, individually, particularly, specifically, and purposefully looks like. It's to love them in such a way that we are keeping God's laws, particularly, generally because to love god is to also love our neighbor so see love is not merely a legal requirement fulfilled but it's the transformed redeemed nature acting out applying the gospel of sanctification in christlikeness it is us transformed and desiring to honor the God that has saved us, appreciating the love that God has expressed for us in Jesus Christ, and naturally wanting to share that, to live that, and to bless that to the world. The rest of verse 9 says this, and, and any other commandment, these are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. These commandments and any other commandment, they are summarized in this phrase, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's just like um, what Jesus shared, right, in Matthew 22, and we'll take a look at that real quickly. In Matthew 22, verse 35 to 40. Get the next slide. It'll have uh, Matthew 22 up there. It is that same passage that we looked at. The lawyer asks him, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. He's not talking about three different, you know, I don't know, parts of us that operate separately as if, okay, I know you love the Lord with your heart, but not with your soul. That, that's problematic. I know you love the Lord with your mind, right? But not with your heart. It, that's, problem. that's not what he's dealing with. He is saying to love the Lord your God with everything, so that sometimes he adds in the word strength, meaning physical. He is saying that every part of us that makes us human needs to love the Lord. That is the singular greatest commandment. He says that in verse 38. This is the great and first commandment. It takes priority over all other commandments. In verse 39, and, as a, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And in verse 40, underline this in your mind. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So you, should, you need to vertically, you need to love the Lord your God with all of your being. That comes from Deuteronomy 6.5. Then he says horizontally, you need to love your neighbor as yourself. That comes from Leviticus 19.18. And he says if you apply these two simple summation commandments, it summarizes and fulfills the entire law. All right? On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The entire Old Testament can be summarized, can be put together, right? Love is the summary of all of God's commandments. Look at, let's look at our final point here. <clears throat> point number three. Love is the fulfillment. Love is the fulfillment of God's law. <clears throat> Verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. There's just two simple statements that he makes here as kind of establishing the final foundation, the, the principle that he's trying to draw us into. Paul says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. In other words, the one thing that is characteristic of love is that it seeks what is good and not what is bad. 
may, may seem obvious, but that, that's the point. You could, uh, let, let's put it this way. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, meaning it does no evil, nothing that, that, that creates badness. He mentioned specifics. You should not commit adultery. His application of love is to say, but yeah, but if you love your neighbor, you wouldn't commit adultery with, with her husband. If you love your neighbor, you wouldn't commit adultery with that, with that human being because you're drawing them down a path of sin. If you love your neighbor, if you love that other human being, you, you won't need to be told not to commit murder. That, that comes second nature, right? That's obvious. If you love your neighbor, you will not steal from them or covet things that they have. But instead, you'll be rejoiced with them. You'll be glad for them. Even the fact that they have abilities, capacities, and resources that you don't. You find joy in that. Love doesn't cause wrong or evil in others. Put it this way. Let's say we're forming a new, new union, right? California which often has desired to secede from the union anyway. Let's say we form our own government. Let's say that I, right, I didn't put my name on the ballot to become governor, but let's say I become governor and California secedes, and so I name myself king. And so as the king, I call some of you guys, and I say, let's make some laws. Let's make this, let's good. Let's start with laws concerning moms, right? So, okay, let's start with laws concerning moms. And we sit around the table, and I say, you know what? I think one law we should have is, um, thou shalt not poke your mom with a pencil. Yeah, with a pencil. That's true. And then we high-five each other. We say, that's true. And then someone says, wait a minute. Standard pencil, color pencil, and mechanical pencil. It's like, oh, okay, all three, right? Standard pencils, color pencils, or mechanical pencils. All of them are illegal from this day forward. Excellent law. We, we clap, we shake hands, we high-five. And then someone says, okay, but what about pens? Yes! You, thou shalt not poke your mom with pencils, colored, standard, mechanical, or even pens. Someone said, how about erasable pens? Yes, erasable pens, ink pens, blue pens, red pens, write them all down. We start to collect just under the category of you shall not poke your mom. Like not just pens and pencils, but now anything that is sharp. In fact, we include things that are not sharp, right? Car keys, baseballs, right? Dead fish. I mean, we come up with crazy. You could come up with an endless list of prohibitions of things that you should not do to say this is what it means for you to live in a righteous and good society where we care about each other. Or you could simplify it all by saying you should love your mom. And in any circumstance, and every circumstance comes this way, right? Explicitly prohibited laws and commandments, as well as any other commandments, you can say, man, we have, we have covered all of this under this singular roof, right? right? The umbrella statement is simply, you should love. See, since love does not do wrong, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore then, love has the capacity of fulfilling the intention of the law. That's the second part. Love does no wrong, and love is fulfilling God's law. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of God's laws. It's a re-emphasis on this idea that love can satisfy all the intention of God's laws, his prohibitions, his encouragements, etc. And let me say that as the redeemed of God, Christians in particular, those that have called upon the name of Jesus Christ, if you call yourself a Christian, these things, this idea of love is so significant to us that it is really the test of faith and growth. And sanctification. James 2.8 says it this way, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. James says, listen, how are you doing spiritually? I know you're doing well if you fulfill the royal law. He calls it the royal law, suggesting that it takes priority or precedence and probably meaning that it is the umbrella statement under which all the other commandments might fit. And he says that's why love is a defining characteristic of genuine faith. John 13, Jesus says as much about the new commandment for his disciples. John 13, 34, 35, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. These one another's are probably talking about disciple to disciple. Nevertheless, verse 35, by this all people... All people, everyone else, would know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Guys, as we kind of wind down this particular passage in the application of love, 
right? Love is the obligation of every Christian. And it's the standing debt that we continue to pay, not out of this, this heavy-handed obligation, but out of the lightness, the freedom of knowing that we have such love given to us in Jesus Christ. Love is a summary of all the commandments. That, that if instead of worrying about all the things that we are not supposed to do, the things that we are supposed to do, all we worry about is how do we love people better? How do we love people, but love needs to be defined clearly as the kind of love that God has for us. So that doesn't mean that they sin and we just let them get away with it. It means that we address sin because God would have us address sin. We love them well that loves like God himself. But we never, right? We never allow love to become this sentimental thing And at the same time, we do not allow love to be pushed aside as some weird sentimental thing. It is the fulfillment of God's law. Here's the implication of this for us. This is the real and very weighty warning that is baked into this idea that that, uh, love is the fulfilling of God's royal law. If love for God and for people is singularly the greatest commandment, Right, the two combined, love, if love is the greatest commandment, then I think it's easily deduced that the absence of love might quite possibly be the greatest sin. And it may be a sign of spiritual death. Maybe you're a Christian here, or maybe you're not a Christian, or maybe you're not sure of where you stand um, in terms of your faith in Christianity. But let let me say this. If you think yourself to be a born-again child of God because you have repented of sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, but you do not walk in love, I can only say this. There's no evidence that God has genuinely redeemed you. And you say, man, that's, that's a lot to say. That's pretty judgmental. Well, it would be if it was just my opinion. But this comes straight from Scripture. We have, we have one more text. I don't, I don't know if it'll come up there on the screen. But it's 1 John chapter 2, verse 9 through 11, and then 1 John 3, 14. 1 John 2, 9 through 11 says this, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. He says one thing, but it's not evidence in love. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. 1 John 3, 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life. How do we know that? Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Can I give you this very strong admonition and warning? The scripture seems to paint a picture that Christian love is not just an obligation that that, that comes and overflows out of our hearts, but if you don't see that evidenced, if those Christians around you don't see that evidence in you, you need to ask yourself, why? Has the love of God in Christ diminished so that you do not appreciate God's love for you? Because the the redeemed of God, they understand God's love. And they pay it forward. It is a singular attribute of every Christian that they walk in love, not perfectly, but consistently because that is to the glory of God and is the purpose of his salvation for us. The gospel places this obligation of love upon each one of us that calls upon the name of Christ. May we walk in a manner that honors him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us and ask that you would bless the preaching of the word the singing of your praise, the lifting up of prayers, especially for those that are in danger. Um, And we praise you that you are good. May we walk in love so that we might represent the redeemed, those that are the children of God in a way that is just like the character of our Heavenly Father through his Son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.